Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. War College is now an independent production not associated with Reuters News. Yeah, he, he's a commander in General Hatter's um I guess you could call them an army. And he posted uh, a series of videos where he was executing prisoners uh, who were captured in um, military operations. Now, he was mainly claiming these were kind of ISIS and jihadis and that they'd gone through a proper uh, judiciary process. But, you know, these one thing that's disturbing about these videos is it starts off being, you know, one person and it starts ramping up until it's eventually rows of people in orange jumpsuits being executed. You're listening to War College, a weekly podcast that brings you the stories from behind the front lines. Here are your hosts, Matthew Galt and Jason Fields. Hello, welcome to War College. I'm your host, Matthew Galt. My co-host, Jason Fields, is on vacation in Ireland this week. Open Source Signals Intelligence is a new and game-changing form of intelligence gathering that pulls information from social media, government releases, and publicly available satellite photography to paint a picture of conflict zones. Bellingcat is home to pioneers of the method, and this week on War College, we're talking to Elliot Higgins about his life and work chasing down rumors of chemical weapons and dodging Russian propaganda attacks. Elliot, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Right, Elliot, can you tell us a little bit about what Bellingcat does and how they work? So um, Bellingcat, uh, I founded that in 2014 um, after I'd been blogging for a couple of years under the name of Graham Moses, um, using open source information to investigate the conflict in Syria. Uh, I, I saw over that time there were a lot of people who had started using this um, kind of these investigation techniques who weren't getting the same sorts of attention I was. So I decided to launch a new site under a new name where I could bring those people together and also produce kind of guides and case studies so other people could learn. During that time, we've done investigations on things like MH17, the um, conflicts in Ukraine and Syria, uh, and started expanding into different areas, for example, investigating um, corruption, uh, kind of environmental and um, conservation issues as well. So we're basically using open source investigation and trying to think of the different ways it can be used in different areas. What were you? What had you been blogging about before 2014? What were you interested in? Oh, I was looking at the um, conflict in Syria. So I'd, I'd started that off because um, in 2011 I was watching the uh, conflict in Libya, just as a kind of just as news consumption. 
but I, I, I started seeing a lot of stuff coming through from Libya about um, what was happening on the ground that wasn't really being picked up in the mainstream media. And I thought it was very interesting. And just from the perspective of seeing that there was all this detail that just wasn't being uh, reported and a lot of it seemed interesting, was just kind of a bit frustrating for me. So when I launched my um, blog in 2012, the conflict in Libya had wound down a bit and um, Syria was becoming kind of escalating as a conflict. And I was seeing the same sort of social media posts there. So um, it was really began because I wanted to see how much information I could gather um, about what was happening in Syria just from open sources, just so I could understand what was going on. And what, what is your methodology? Like, especially kind of back then, what did you do? Did you just pull up Facebook or Twitter and go looking for videos and pictures and kind of start to piece things together? How does that work exactly? Well, um, one of the big moments for me was um, in early 2012, there was an event known as the Hula Massacre, which is basically towns were attacked. Uh, one place in particular was Hula, and there was a massacre there. And the one thing I noticed there is there were YouTube channels that were being used particularly by that town to upload videos. So there were three or four channels. And I, I, I kind of looked at this, and I looked at some other channels that videos were being uploaded on, and I realized that these um, channels were all kind of based either on a location or a certain group that um, was using the channel. So it would be in an armed group or a uh, media center. So I started cataloging these, and every day I would go through these um, videos I, um, from these playlists that were newly uploaded and just see what there was there to see. So um, I came across, to begin with, videos like the first video of cluster bombs, the first barrel bomb videos. And then as I kind of taught myself ways to verify the videos using techniques like geolocation, I kind of made more and more um, kind of in-depth analysis of these um, images and videos. Talk about that verification process, right? Because there's so much of what we see, especially here in the States, uh, and presumably in, in England, where you are as well, on social media that's disinformation. So how do you vet something? I'll give you an example from the um, April 4th Khan Sheikhoun um, chemical attack um, this year. The first thing we do is we search through um, all the social media channels that might be posting information about the attack, ideally the kind of the original channel. So, you know, for example, the YouTube channels used by local groups or Facebook pages or Twitter. And you find with Syria, there's usually a Facebook page, Twitter account and YouTube channel for the various kind of organizations who are out there. It's not like, you know, anywhere else in the world where you have Twitter and anyone can get on Twitter and post straight away. It's, uh, you know, limited internet access. So they're kind of a bit more systematic about how they use that. And we can actually use that to our advantage. So we try and gather all the reports we can, all the kind of initial reactions to it, the first kind of posts about what's happened. And then we put them in order of time when they were posted. And among that, you'll see things like videos showing the aftermath of the attack. You'll see people talking about what's happened. And you can then start, um, if you don't speak Arabic, you get someone to transcribe what people are saying. And you look at what they are saying. You compare the various witness statements and claims and allegations to each other and to the other information you've collected. So over time, really what you're doing is collecting all this information, comparing it to each other. And then you start looking at things like, okay, can we figure out if these, you know, for example, with Kaj Kum, we had 20 or 30 videos showing places where people were being treated. But at first, they looked like they could be the same location, but you can actually organize them by the different locations they're in. Then you can start using satellite imagery to geolocate some of these videos to confirm exactly where these were recorded. 
So you start building layer and layer of information about what's happening and what people are claiming. And then you start kind of looking for clues for, you know, for example, the symptoms of what people are suffering from. Very typical of what we've seen in previous sarin attacks. So that seemed to indicate it was a nerve agent of some sort compared to the chlorine um, attacks that have been happening repeatedly over the last couple of years. So you, you start kind of cross-referencing it against other material you have as well. In a case like that, ideally, you'd have something like the remains of ammunition that could be identified. But in the case of Khan Sheikhoun, while there are remains, they couldn't be identified as a particular ammunition, and I don't believe they have yet. But that's kind of the process you would go through with um, like a, one particular incident. What's your professional background? Before I started blogging, I was working in um, finance administration roles. Um, and then I basically just taught myself to do the verification process and spent an awful lot of time looking at what was coming out of uh, the conflict in Syria and then what happened with MH17 and the conflict in Ukraine. That strikes me as a pretty big, a pretty big change. Why, why did you do that? What drove you to start doing this? Well, it, I've, got, I've always had an interest in you know, kind of world events, and obviously the Arab Spring was a big thing. And then I'm the sort of person who spent an awful lot of time on the internet, so I started seeing a lot of stuff coming through social media. And it was just that it was ignored. And then when I started doing this work, a lot of people started taking notice of what I was doing, and that kind of drove me on to do it more. And then it got to a point where I was basically in a position where I was looking for a job, and I thought, well, why not try doing um, you know this is something that's more full-time so I crowdfunded um, my kind of initial year or so of work um, and then supplemented that with uh, I started being asked to go to various events to talk about this and run workshops and then um, it, you know eventually we started raising grants for people who are kind of funding this um, and you know we, we've got like a Russian language version of Bellingcat now we're doing investigations into financial corruption in the UK and it's kind of really expanded into a whole bunch of different areas now it's just a really interesting and exciting field to be part of especially now we're kind of working more with international organizations like the icc and ohhr to see how this open source investigation can be applied to the work that they're doing um and there's a lot of you know very positive interest in this field your whole statement just there opened up like three more questions for me uh, let's see if i can move down them let's talk about the the icc and the international criminal court because you are now a tech advisor for them is that correct yeah, I'm on the um, Technology Advisory Board, and they've they've been very interested in open source information and social media for the past uh, few years. And so this is part of what I've been talking to them about. In, in fact, they've recently just issued their first arrest warrant that was based off social media posts, videos posted by a um, Libyan armed group showing a series of executions. So that's um, very interesting. That's kind of the first big big case where you know that has been used as as core as kind of core to what they're doing so so for them you know it opens up a lot of opportunities and you know possibilities to gather information and they, they've asked me to uh, kind of speak to quite a lot of the people there we're talking about training um some of the staff in doing more advanced investigation techniques as well the the arrest that was mustafa busaf all were folly is that correct yes that's correct Describe the videos that he was posting online. Yeah, he, he's a commander in General Hatter's, um, I guess you could call them an army. And he posted uh, a series of videos where he was executing prisoners uh, who were captured in um, military operations. Now, he was mainly claiming these were kind of ISIS and jihadis and that they'd gone through a p proper uh, judiciary process. 
But, you know, these one thing that's disturbing about these videos is it starts off being, you know, one person and it starts ramping up until it's eventually rows of people in orange jump, jumpsuits being executed. And the kind of discussions, um, you know, around that, you know, what they were saying about that is they were trying to scare their enemies. So these were very brutal videos and it got the attention of the ICC. And this is uh, what's led, led to the um, arrest warrant. But it's clearly, clearly him in all the videos and it's posted on their own kind of Facebook page. So it's very blatant as well. What you're doing is kind of a new tool for investigating war criminals. Yeah, and, and irony is, is I kind of got into this because of what was happening in Libya. And then Syria kind of drew not only my attention, but the attention of pretty much everyone who's working on kind of open source and conflicts. Well, it's now Libya where it seems there's the most scope for using this injustice and accountability and kind of with groups like the ICC rather than Syria, which everyone is focused on. So we're hoping at Bellingcat very soon to start focusing more on Libya and looking at the open source information coming from there, um, seeing if there's more information we can gather about potential war crimes and other violations. Do you think that the work you're doing and, I guess, just social media in general is making it harder for the international community to ignore places like Libya? In the 90s, when we didn't have Facebook... Uh, horrible things were still going on all over the world. There were still executions like this, but now we see them. Yeah, and uh, I mean, in my own work, I've, I often encounter people who've worked um, in governments who have said, you know, even very early on in my early blogging days, they were using kind of my work and following my work to understand what was happening in a lot of these areas. And one thing I come across a lot is when speaking to kind of policymakers is they kind of have lost faith in their own intelligence communities. You know, they get a one pager explaining what's happening and they don't kind of really trust it. So when we can come to them with this open source information and say, you know, here's all the videos, here's the analysis we've done, they feel confident in that. And I think that's the one thing that's really useful about open source investigation is you can really be completely transparent about where your information is coming from, what sort of analysis you've done on it um, and how you've drawn your conclusions step by step. And that's something that played into um, a lot with our work with the um, MH17 case, because as part of that, early on, we were actually approached by the uh, or I was approached by the um, Dutch police's um, joint investigation team to be a witness. And one thing that I was interviewed for several hours going through the work we've done. And one thing they said is they found it very useful that we kind of laid out all our sources and where we got our information from and how we came to our conclusions. And it seems our work had an influence on the joint investigations team's own approach to using social media as part of the case. And so it, it, it seems that, you know, the influence you've had there is that they started using this and investigating this. I think eventually they even set up an entire uh, kind of department within the investigation just to look at social media. It feels like it's taken people like you to pioneer this. You think it would have been a no brainer for some of these government led intelligence agencies to do this kind of work. And, and I'm wondering if you've had how your relationships have been with government intelligence agencies. Are they usually are they usually that friendly as in the Dutch example, or have you ever had pushback? So generally, what I found is um, they've been generally positive about the work we've done. I mean, I, I've been told often they cite us in their reports as well, or just use the videos and images we've used in their own reports. So generally, it's been very positive. I mean, it's not like I have the CIA knocking on my door asking me questions or anything like that. It's just, you know, occasionally we do an event and we'll bump into someone who, you know, has spoken to someone about our work or they may have been working for someone else who um, they were using our work to inform what they were doing. But, yeah, it's been generally very positive And um, we've worked on various um, 
uh, kind of projects where we've been you know, working with uh, local and uh, national police on how to use this kind of stuff in their own work. You can actually see now the effects of that. For example, the uh, recent Europol campaign, um, Stop Child Abuse, Trace an Object, where they've basically crowdsourced um, the identity of objects that were taken from uh, abuse images. And that's something we've kind of supported unofficially. And, uh, you know, even a Reddit community has grown around it, where people have been trying to identify all these objects. And it's been quite successful so far. Quite a lot of them have been identified. This feels like something that you can train anyone to do. Do you think that's accurate? I mean, the basics are simple. I mean, it's spot the difference, basically, but for grown-ups. So it's not hard to teach the basics. I I usually find the main thing that people need is just the kind of persistency and obsessiveness to dig through a lot of material. But um, one thing I say, you know, you don't you don't have to spend your entire life doing this like I have. You can contribute in smaller ways. So one project we worked on was um, verifying Russian airstrike videos from Syria. They posted these gun camera videos on their YouTube channel, the Russian Ministry of Defense, claiming they were bombing ISIS. And there's a lot of allegations that they weren't bombing ISIS. So what happened there, there was a community on Twitter that kind of grew up, only less than a dozen people, who started using Google Earth imagery to geolocate all these um, videos. We kind of then used that, that as a um, as a data set that we then could kind of draw conclusions from. It, we could clearly show that by comparing the Google satellite imagery to the imagery from the Russian Ministry of Defense, that they were lying in many of the cases about where they were bombing. So we discovered in the first 30 videos they posted online claiming to be ISIS targets, only one of them was actually in ISIS territory. And that was according to their own maps of ISIS territory. So purely using, you know, verifying Russian information using Russian sources, we could show that they were not telling the truth. All right, we've been dancing around the Russia thing just a little bit, and I want to kind of dive into it now because I think it's an important part of your story. Can you explain your relationship with RT and Russia? I, I would say it's probably on the bad side of things. And we, so because we've done a lot of work that's critical of Russia, and we've shown frequently that Russia has lied in public, uh, I'll give you a good example of that. When they, just after MH17 was shot down, the Russian Ministry of Defense gave a long press conference kind of presenting their evidence of what happened on the day. And we were able to prove using open source investigation that these were just all untrue. They just lied about it. They had presented satellite imagery. They doctored. They had lied about the flight path of MH17, all these um, different details. And basically, since then, they've really not liked us. So we've had we were targeted by the same hackers that targeted DNC and Podesta um, emails, um, Fancy Bear. Um, they tried to fish our um, passwords for our email accounts, but we fortunately recognized they were really obvious phishing emails. So that wasn't too much of a problem. We didn't even realize until about a year and a half later, until the actual DNC hacks happened, because one of the security companies who worked on those leaks published one of the emails that were used for the phishing, and it was identical to the ones we received, down to the spelling mistakes. Um, And then we consulted with them and discovered it was actually the same group who did it. So we've had the cyber attacks. We've had our website hacked. We've had... Lots of negative press in places like Russia Today and Sputnik and in Russian media. The Russian Ministry of Defense and Foreign Ministry basically called us liars. Um, when the Russian Foreign Ministry did that, I asked them for their evidence, and they sent me a um, eight-pager of um, plagiarized blog posts as their reply, as their evidence. So I asked them next time they shouldn't send me plagiarized blog posts. They should at least cite their sources if they're going to copy stuff off the internet. So, yeah, I mean, generally it's being they hate it. 
Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. And you, you've had RT reporters show up at your house in your office kind of unannounced before trying to do a gotcha, correct? Yeah, so basically one day, it was just before the, uh, I think the um, second anniversary of MH17, I think, I had a message from a, I would call them a journalist, a person, who basically said they would like to interview me. They're in Leicester, which is my hometown, and they were filming something about the Diwali celebrations they have in Leicester, even though they weren't in for three weeks, which was my first clue something was up and he said he was a freelance reporter and just wanted to record something but i recognized him as someone who'd done a hit piece on um, the syrian observatory of human rights a couple of weeks before for russia today and i was busy anyway so i said if you want an interview you can interview me kind of next week when i'm in london and i was out of the office and busy anyway but then um i started getting calls first from my accountant to say someone from um a journalist had been there filming, asking where I was, which was bizarre because they're just like an independent accountancy firm with lots of clients. So so when the secretary said, oh, I don't know who he is, they were like, oh, isn't that weird that she doesn't know who he is, even though it's not. Then they went to my office and I wasn't there, which they knew. Um, and they tried to make out it was weird that I wasn't at my office. And then they went to my old home. Uh, where I didn't live, but my uh, brother does, and my mother was visiting, and they doorstepped her, and then they kind of edited it down to make it all look very suspicious and weird, and they got they spoke to people on the street saying, oh, isn't it strange this person isn't here? And they went, oh, yes, it's very strange. So it's basically just this hit piece they put together, but it kind of shows you the lengths they're willing to go to. And in fact, in 2016, um, the joint investigation team had a press conference, and just before that, it was about MH17, and they were going to um, basically reveal what they're finding. So Russia Today was covering it. And they basically just did a two-minute hit piece on me where they literally took footage of me doing presentations and edited it down to make me look like I was saying stuff I wasn't. I was like, being really vague about stuff when I wasn't. So um, that's now subject of a, to, of a um, re- Ofcom TV regulator complaint in the UK. Um, so I'm just seeing how that will go. But, yeah, they're pretty aggressive about that. All right, so you're you're kind of someone that's been on the front lines of fighting this Russian disinformation campaign because it's it's personal for you. They've made it personal. How do we, as just news consumers, parse through what's real and what's fake as we're moving as we're moving through our daily lives? It, it, it's a challenge because you know no one wants to be a full time fact checker uh, unless they they're really into it. But most your general reader doesn't want to be doing that. I think it's really just down to coming to, you know, have, having new sources you trust. And, uh, you know, if you, you're on amazingnews.co.jp.uk, you know, just, it's, you know, trust, you know, re, you know, mainstream news sources. Because there is this kind of split now where, you know, I see this all the time where this kind of alternative media is kind of um, taking over in some people's mind. But a lot of this alternative media is just, is, is just rubbish. 
And I'm not even talking Infowars. I mean, there's sites that some people consider mainstream that are rubbish. But then again, you have sites like the Mail Online that print any old rubbish just as long as they get clicks from it. So um, it, it's, it's kind of just a matter of using your judgment. Newspapers aren't going to be right 100% of the time. But there are sites that are going to be wrong a hell of a lot of the time, even by purpose or by accident. And those are the ones you've got to just use your judgment about what your news consumption is. And you don't trust sites like Sputnik and Russia Today to give you an, you know, a balanced view on what's happening in Russia and, and you know, with the MH17 case in Syria. It, it's a very difficult question to answer. It was interesting to see that Facebook is now saying that they're going to do something about the advertising um, revenue from um, Facebook pages that post a lot of new, fake, fake stories based on the judgment of their fact checkers they've been cooperating with. So there are attempts to deal with this, and I think there does have to be, but it, it's very, very tricky because when you start talking about effectively censorship, you start having to think about countries like Turkey and China and Russia where um, that goes far beyond what you know we in the West would consider a reasonable amount of censorship. If you could give everybody in the public, the reading public, one thing from your toolkit, one thing from the open source intelligence toolkit, what would you, what would you impress upon them? The, the most, the easiest thing I would say is just do a reverse image search on something. If you think it looks too good to be true. I mean, with a browser like Chrome, it's literally, you know, right click reverse image search. Um, only yesterday I saw the um, traditional flood image of a shark swimming through a street being shared as being Houston. And, you know, it's one of these images that's just been around forever and you can find very easily if you just do a very simple search, but still people were sharing it, journalists were sharing it. So that's like one of the most basic things you, that anyone can do. Do you think that we're a little bit tech illiterate? Maybe that's the wrong word. Maybe social media illiterate? It's so It's such a new thing that we're still kind of trying to parse how to use it. Yeah, I, I think as well there's been a massive um, development in how social media is being used in the last five years, you know, especially through uh, what's happened with the Arab Spring. You know, ten years ago we had um, iPhones launched and the introduction of social media profile um, platforms, and then apps to access those even, you know, in an easier way and to share images and photos. And you know, we we kind of just expect back people to know how to use this. And then we're surprised when fake information gets shared and we have you know, white nationalists all over the Internet. I, I personally think that the, this kind of understanding of how the Internet works and how it's used in social media and open source information is something that should be taught you know, when kids are at school, not something you hope they learn as they grow up. Because, you know, there's a whole lot, load of issues around how the Internet is being used, you know, abuse, grooming, all kinds of issues like that, plus the kind of you know, how do you know what's fake? How do you know what's true? Can you verify it stuff? You know, what tools are out there to use? And I think that's something that, you know, everyone should be learning at an earlier age than they are now. But, but you know, this is going to be something that's difficult to do because, you know, most teachers are you know, teaching now, even if they're early 20s, they still would have been at school kind of at a time where this kind of technology smartphones was only just appearing. Now we've got a generation growing up where they've had smartphones their entire, you know, kind of young lives. It's 15 and they've had iPhones. So, you know, it's, it's been a real massive change. And I think it's, it's really a kind of a quiet revolution that's happened. That, you know, most people have just kind of not even realized it's happening around them. And it has happened and it has changed things dramatically. Has Bellingcat ever gotten anything wrong? Not wrong. We've made uh, my. I think the one thing that I 
do regret is, is, is a couple of years ago, ISIS had a social media campaign where they encouraged their followers to take photographs in European cities, holding a piece of paper with basically a hashtag on and, you know, ISIS is everywhere type stuff. And the whole idea was to generate this idea of kind of fear that ISIS was every, everywhere. Um, so I basically crowdsourced on Twitter. Um, I asked people if they could geolocate them. And very quickly, people did. It was this very kind of positive campaign where it went from this all oh, scary ISIS is everywhere to ISIS followers in Europe are idiots because they give away their positions on social media. That was a good positive campaign. And then a year or so later, we were looking to the Berlin uh, market attacks and we were looking at the um, social media profiles of the people who followed the attacker. And one profile several months prior had posted several photographs of an assault rifle and one photograph of a kind of European countryside scene. And we spent weeks trying to figure out where this was just to be kind of thorough. And we couldn't figure it out. So we, um, I basically went on Twitter and said, could anyone, you know, does anyone know this location? It was posted on the page of the, an ISIS sympathizer. And that's all I put. And unfortunately a right wing blog in Holland posted the photograph and had identified it as a holiday camp in Holland um, but they strongly implied in their post that this was a sign of an imminent attack by ISIS. And that resulted in the police having to go out there, the manager knocking on everyone's door to make sure there weren't any ISIS members hiding in any of the chalets. And it just turned, just this one little thing turned into this kind of minor incident in, um, Holland. So that was, um, kind of, uh, frustrating and, uh, annoying. And I think the biggest problem we face though is that, you know, we have a whole army of people who are either Russian kind of trolls or sympathetic to kind of various outlooks that really attack us for every single thing they can possibly imagine is wrong with our work or what they perceive is wrong with our work. So we've kind of become very cautious about how much information we put out and, you know, how, um, certain we are before we publish something. So that kind of protects us to a certain extent. But, you know, when you use social media a lot, um, like I do, it does get to the point where you just have a flood of people just criticizing you all the time for any perceived problem they have with you, even if it's completely ridiculous. All right, I've got two more questions for you. The, the first to follow up on what you were just talking about. There's a real danger today in social media for there to be like kind of an outrage critical mass so you have to be very careful, as you were just saying, about what you kind of what you kind of post and how many people you bring into the investigation, right? So when something like that Holland thing happens, do you feel a certain level of responsibility for that? I do. I mean, it, it kind of depends, though. I mean, sometimes it's you, it's like with the Europol thing, um, with this kind of stop child abuse campaign. It, one thing that worries me there, and I think I'm not sure if they've considered that, is the um, kind of vicarious trauma aspect of it. Because one thing I found a lot in the work that we do is you, you kind of can train yourself to watch a horrible image to a certain extent. You kind of prepare yourself for it mentally. Uh, it's not like you have to spend 10 minutes doing it. It's just something you get used to. What catches you out are the things that you kind of don't expect to see and it creates associations in your mind. So when I was doing uh, the MH17 um, investigation, one thing I was doing is look, looking through the wreckage of MH17, um, looking for signs of damage that could come from shrapnel just to have an idea of what had happened to it and this was very early days but there was a toy rabbit in the wreckage that was given the same type given to my daughter when she was born and that kind of subconscious association is what really affected me now what you're doing with the europol poll, um, investigation is you've got all these different children's toys and clothes 
that are from abuse images and you know they're from abuse images so even subconsciously you're making these connections between you know a girl's swimming costume and you know this horrific abuse that these images are probably showing but you don't actually still see the full images so my concern there is you start doing these kind of campaigns without fully understanding um the potential effects of vicarious trauma so that I mean that's just one example, but there's various pitfalls like that. You kind of have to be aware of doing this, you know, making information too public. We had also the example of the um, Reddit campaign to find the Boston Marathon bombers that identified the wrong people. So I, I think it's useful, you know, at the kind of top of these kind of crowdsourced open source investigations, is to have someone kind of, you know, checking stuff and making these kind of decisions about what's valid, what is should go out there, what shouldn't. Last question. So here in the States, a popular media narrative is that the Russian trolls used disinformation and fake news to help sway the election, right? Yeah. As someone who's been on the receiving end of Moscow propaganda and kind of knows it inside and out and has been dealing with them for years before our election, um, what's your take on that? Do you think there's any kind of truth to that? I think there is to an extent, but I think what often happens is people see people... Uh, who disagree with them or have a stance that they can't imagine anyone holding. And they just say, oh, you must be a Russian troll. You must be fake. I've spent, you know, a long time kind of covering Syria. And I've seen this interesting progression where there were a lot of people who are very pro-Assad who um, basically hated me for the work I was doing. And, you know, they, they, they're kind of a community online. And then when MH17 was shot down and we started doing work on Russia, um, there's a kind of rushing pro-Putin community who kind of became very apparent around MH17 and around what was happening in Ukraine. Then Russia started bombing Syria and the kind of pro-acid, pro-Putin MH17 troopers kind of came together. And within that, you've got lots of people like the kind of Alex Jones fans and stuff like that. Then with basically what happened with um, Brexit and then Trump, there was a lot of crossover between those communities and these pre-existing communities. And you've just seen over the last five years, these different communities, the kind of Venn diagram of these communities kind of becoming tighter and tighter. And I think some people see that and they can't believe people will be pro-acid, pro-Trump, pro-Putin, pro-Brexit and be a real person. And they see, oh, this must be a Russian troll. But there are people out there like that. They are people who genuinely believe that stuff. And as insane as it is to hold all those positions to us, it, it happens all the time. And there's a whole communities of websites and people around that. So I, I think often the influence of Russian trolls can be over just because people aren't aware that these kind of communities have existed for um, a long time before even you know, the presidential elections. They're just people with um, bizarre and extreme um, opinions on terrible people. <laughs> I think that would be fair to say. It's it's easier to dismiss the people who disagree with you as as boogeymen instead of reckoning with their humanity and realizing that they've, you know, been consuming some some unpleasant information. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, personally, I just got to the point where. It, I, I recognize these people as soon as they send me a message on Twitter, so I just block everyone. And it's made, you quite quickly realize that, you know, this is the, a kind of echo chamber, though. This kind of Venn diagram that's kind of pulled together has created this echo chamber. Things like Breitbart and Info, Infowars and now this kind of rise of the um, white nationalism in America it is also kind of tied to these communities as well. But it's not kind of a, it, it, it's, it's kind of like there are a lot of these kind of alternative communities 
um, who have this kind of conspiracy kind of in, kind of focus. They, the kind of ideas they share and the way they share these ideas are always very similar. And because, you know, the work of Bellingcat has used kind of open source information a lot, they basically have a lot to, you know, it, it, it's almost as if we started writing about 9-11, you know, 16 years ago, uh, except we were like basically saying, yeah, it was two airliners that did it. We have all this video footage. They come along and they still have the whole crazy notions about controlled explosions and stuff. Whilst um, it, it's in a way the same kind of communities. It, it is, there's this thread that has run through conspiracy theories going, you know, um, communities going back decades that also draws in kind of these pro-acid, pro-Trump, pro-Putin kind of white nationalist crowds as well. So that that is something that's already exists, always existed. It might have been um, kind of amplified, probably l- less influenced and more amplified by kind of these Russian kind of troll things. But in my personal experience, the Russian trolls have been generally more annoying than effective. Well, that's good to know. Elliot Higgins from Bellingcat, thank you so much for coming on War College. Yes, no problem. Thank you. Thank you for listening to War College. I have been your host, Matthew Galt. Again, Jason Fields is on vacation in Ireland this week, taking a much-deserved break. We'll be back next week with more stories from behind the front lines. If you like what you heard on the show, please follow us on Twitter or visit us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash war college podcast. You can find us on iTunes where we ask that you please rate us. We're also on Stitcher, on Acast, and wherever else fine podcasts are distributed. 